Good morning to each of you. Um, this morning I feel led to continue to look at um, a section of the Old Testament that I don't often turn to for a text. And those of you that were here when I preached um, three or four weeks ago would know this. Um, some of this is a personal journey for me. I realize that I've been a pastor for um, more than 10 years and have never, except once, I think, turned to the prophets for a primary text for a Sunday morning. Um, and when you look at scripture, um, about 22% of the text is prophecy, and that does not include the book of Revelation. So I want to continue that this morning and invite your attention to the book of Malachi. This morning you've got a little bit of a break. It's one of the easiest minor prophets to find. It is the last one in the Old Testament. So if you can find Matthew, you are close. Um, I want to just start by setting a little bit of the stage of what's happening in Israel and where the people are at. And then I'd like to just talk about maybe what they were feeling and how that may apply to where we're at before we get into the book um, this morning. And I have to say, as I dig into these, into these scriptures, um, I'm amazed at just the depth and the richness of God's word and how relevant it is. And I look at a book as short as it is, 55 verses, and realize that I'm going to share a summary there are so many things that we maybe should dig into that we're not, and I hope that you can hear, um, hear this as a summary and hear both what I'm saying and what I am not saying and give a little bit of grace um, for a pastor that's doing a summary, and there's many things that probably could or should be said uh, about the text. So just uh, for some background, here's a map of, the, of Israel, and what had happened is you've got the northern tribes up here in the green. There were 10 tribes there, and in the southern kingdom you had two. And when, when they split, eventually the southern kingdom set up, they said, hey, you know what, rather than going to Jerusalem to worship, we're going to set up a place you can come to Bethel, or if that's a little bit too far, you can come here to Dan, and you can offer sacrifices to God there. Now, is this in obedience with what the Lord had, had outlined? Absolutely not. So they fell into idolatry. And that is where uh, the prophets come in. So there are, um, there's about a dozen, we call them uh, minor prophets, but they're only, that word is only used because they're short. Their, their text is not minor in importance. Um, here is a map of just how the prophets, uh, where they prophesied and what areas that they would have, um, where they would have ministered. When it comes to a timeline, if you are like me, you read through the kings and you're reading through the prophets and you're like, well, who goes where and what all is going on? Um, here's a little chart that will help us out. Over here is uh, prophets to Israel. So this is the northern kingdom. So we have Amos and Jonah coming first and then Hosea. And they fell here around 722 um, BC and they were taken away. They were assimilated and these are the lost tribes of Israel that you will sometimes hear about. Over or down south, then you start with Micah and Isaiah. The blue just means that it's one of the longer books um, of prophecy. Micah, Isaiah, you get into Nahum, Zephaniah, Habakkuk, Jeremiah. Jerusalem falls. And where we are today in the book of Malachi, so the southern kingdom, they were taken captive. They were living um, in a foreign land. And God graciously brings back a group of exiles. And that's when you have Haggai and Zechariah prophesying. So these exiles come back, and they are so excited. What is God going to do now that they're back in their land? And then a temple is rebuilt. And 
what is God going to do now that the temple is here? He's restoring Israel. This is, it's exciting times and hope is running high. The book of Malachi is the last one, uh, last book of prophecy. And what would have happened is Nehemiah would have come back. They would have built the walls. And then Nehemiah goes back to Persia to serve the king. And Malachi was probably written sometime after he goes home. And roughly you know, 50 to 100 years after the first group came back. So you've got the children of Israel, and they're home again. They've got a temple, and what is God going to do? And they're just you know, waiting and, and thinking that God is about to set all things right. But the story is very different than when, when we read today, when their hopes were high that this time was going to be different. People's hearts were going to be different. And when always before, um, when they built the tabernacle, they built Solomon's temple, God moved in in a miraculous way with his presence. But they built this temple and it was different. And it says that when they built it, there were people crying for joy, people crying for sadness because it didn't match up. But these prophets said that the end is going to be better than the beginning, but it hadn't happened yet. And so these people lived in the land and nothing was really happening. And eventually, their hope in the Lord they were doing the right things, kind of, but it just became empty and meaningless and kind of going through the motions. And that's where God in Malachi uh, addresses them and, uh, and where they're at. So um, one thing to point out before we read the text is this is a word from or a message from, and one of the things I find so interesting is there are so many names of God in the Bible and then I think he's always intentional about what name he uses. So in this book, you're going to hear the Lord of hosts, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of hosts. In fact, almost half of the verses are going to say the Lord of hosts or some variation of it. Way, way, way more than anywhere else in the Bible. So why is this, why is the book that we're about to read a message from the Lord of hosts? One thought on this. So you have the children of Israel, they came back, and their little bit of land that they lived in was about 20 by 30 miles. So essentially, if you can picture um, roughly down to Culpeper and down to Woodbridge, that would be the land that Israel was allowed to occupy. But it really wasn't, it was under, it really wasn't even just theirs. It was under Persian rule. So imagine if you are living in an occupied country and they say, you can have this little bit of section here that's yours. And you live there, but you believe that you are chosen of God. This land is your promised land, and the Messiah is coming. And I think that these people just needed to be reminded again and again and again that they weren't really seeing God show himself as the Lord of hosts, but he is the Lord of hosts with innumerable um, resources or angels or whatever on his side. So as we go through the book, um, just keep that in mind. And a little bit of structure to the book that, or how I'm going to look at this. So the book is actually a series of six arguments or six disputes. So I don't know, I'd be curious who, who all here enjoys a good argument and who all here says arguments are to be avoided at all costs. If you enjoy an argument, um, Today, um, the text is literally six times God says, you're doing this. Do you know how the children of Israel respond? How, well, how do you respond when somebody accuses you of something? 
I'd like to say that I'm very humble and say, oh yes, what can I learn? Way too often I'm just like the children of Israel. I say, what do you mean? How am I doing that? So you're going to see God is going to bring something. The children of Israel are going to say, what? How? And God is going to lay out exactly how they're doing that. Now, there are issues we may not be able to relate to. We're not bringing blemished lambs for sacrifice. And so what I'm going to ask that we do is that while I identify the issue God is talking about in the today column, could we put this in our own words for what, how it may translate to us? And we're going to look at that for those six arguments. And then the Word of God is packed with truth. And I just want to point out some of the key truths along the way in these arguments. And this is where, as a pastor, I almost can't stand it. I can't spend time to develop the thoughts, but we're just, we're, we'll notice them. Um, so this, that's where we're headed. Um, I'm going to read through all 55 verses. You can follow along in your Bible. You can read up here. And what I'm going to do is just read the section that is one argument. And then we're going to stop and, and talk about it a little bit. So Malachi 1, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. One thing I should just add is, just like the prophet Joel that we studied a few weeks ago, this is all we know about Malachi. We know his name and that is all. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country, and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this. And you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. So the first thing God says is, I've loved you. And they come back and they say, how have you loved us? Can you understand maybe why they would ask that in their context? All that's happened to them, they're living in this, this little country. God hasn't come back in a visible way to his temple. And they're saying, where, where are you at? How have you loved me? And they were very focused on their circumstances and saying, how have you loved me? So God points to Jacob and Esau. And one thing that's important here is that where he, he uses the word loved and hate, the, it's important to understand the language is that he has chosen. So God has chosen Jacob and has not chosen to work through Esau. Neither of, them, neither of the brothers deserve to be chosen by God. But God chose to work through them. And one, one of the other things I think is important here is that while God is prophesying against a whole group of people, it does not mean that individuals from that group of people cannot come to know the Lord and experience his redemption. And part of the reason that they were, they were worried about Edom, let me just back up to the map here. Um, so at, at this time, so here you have the children of Israel, Israel, Judah, and Edom is down here. So for many years, Edom actually lived in their land, and it looked like God had rejected Israel. Israel was sent away, and God did prophesy against them. And the whole book of Obadiah is about this, and what he did is over about a 150-year period, all these different people came through, and Edom lost their territory, and they were never able to rebuild it back. But Israel, God did bring back and say, I've loved you, and I'm proving 
proving that I've chosen you. Okay. So the issue for today, um, for me, is the tendency to doubt God's love. So when I look at my circumstances, look at my life, is anyone ever tempted to doubt God's love? And the truth um, from this little section is that God loves and chose us to be redeemed. So we, we obviously, here we believe and talk about um, God giving man free will, but I think we have to recognize that it is all on the basis of God loving us first, and no one comes to the Father unless God actively draws that person. Um, so God loves and chooses us um, to be redeemed. Okay, let's go on to argument number two. This is going to be the longest amount of text. A lot of the texts are pretty short. So picking up in verse 6, A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priest who despise my name. But you say, How have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised when you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor? Says the Lord of hosts. And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us with such a gift from your hand. Will he show favor to any of you? Says the Lord of hosts. So the children of Israel were... They were commanded to bring the first and the best of their flocks, of their crops to God. And it seemed like they were getting into a scenario where worshiping God had become dull and routine, and they weren't bringing their best to God. They were, just, they were bringing sacrifices that were blemished. Picking up in verse 10. And, and what is, how does this feel to God when they're coming, but they don't really mean it? They're coming to the temple. Here's what he says. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept any offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering, for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted, and its fruit, that is, its food may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations." So they had lost sight of how great God actually is and how worthy of, of praise and honor he is. And they were bringing less than their best. And in God's mind, he just says, I wish that somebody would close the door on the temple and just stop. This isn't honoring to me in any way. And I think we've all, it's a little teeny example, but we've all been in conversation where you feel like somebody is maybe giving you a compliment or trying to butter you up and they don't really mean it. Like, does that just, oh, just, just stop? And that's how God feels when we bring him 
less than our all um, in worship. And so I have to look at this um, and just you know, think about my life and in the context of a gathering like this, um, but also you know, how do I approach the Lord in just personally? And you know, looking back on the last several months, you know what? Setting aside time for him and his word, have I left him feeling like it's kind of the leftovers? It's not the first and the best, and way too often I find myself in that position. So he's going to go on and address the priest all in this section, just continuing this argument. It's all the same theme. So he was addressing all of the worshipers, and now he's calling out the priests who are called to lead and are allowing this to keep happening. And now, O priest, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them, because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offerings and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. Did you know that verse was in the Bible? So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. The priests were called to take the sacrifices, and they were called to take the dung of the sacrifices outside of the camp and burn it, so they wouldn't be ceremonially unclean. They had to go through washings and changing of clothes and all these things to come back in. And God is saying, if you're going to bring half worship to me, I'm going to show you that you're, you're unclean from the start. This, I can't imagine saying it any stronger than this, how the Lord feels about worship that's half-hearted. And then he goes on with a beautiful description of what should be happening. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in all of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth. But he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts, for he is. But you have turned aside from the way. You've caused many to stumble by your instructions. You've corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways but show partiality in your instruction. So just summarizing this argument, they were not honoring God with true worship. I had to think of of Jesus, um, I think it was in the context of meeting the woman at the well, saying that the day is coming when true worshipers worship me in spirit and in truth, and the Father is wanting and longing for people to worship him that way. But yet the temptation is to not honor God with true worship. So God desires all people to worship him. In chapter 1, it talks about he wants worship to happen from the rising of the sun to the going down of the same and all nations to be a part of it. So God's heart has always been for all people to worship him. Um, And then one of the things, I didn't touch on this, but there's a a great outline of spiritual leadership in chapter 2, verses 5 through 9. Just thinking about God desiring worship and worship that is never-ending, that, that is the goal of our life and whatever we're doing is to be worshiping God. Um, one of the things that's interesting that's happening right now that you may or may not have read about in the news is there is people are calling it a revival in Kentucky at, um, at Asbury College. And as I understand it, there was a, every Wednesday they gather for chapel, and so they had their normal chapel service. 
And students felt led to stay and just confess and, and pray and sing. And that service has been going on nonstop now for two weeks. And so there's a lot of questions about what it is or what it isn't. But one thing is clear is that there are people who want to hear from the Lord and God is touching lives there. Um, so anyway, I just thought of that in the context of God desiring worship that never stops. Um, and yeah, I don't know what all God is or isn't doing, but <coughs> it's interesting. And I think we do well to pray um, that God would receive glory and that it wouldn't turn into anything that it shouldn't be. All right, that was argument number two. So it had to do, we've talked about God's love, we talked about worship, and here we go into argument number three. Have we not all one Father? Has not God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. So without getting into a lot of detail here, there, there were obviously sinning against each other relationally in the big picture. But specifically, they were marrying wives uh, that were not, they were from nations that were not serving the Lord. And I think it's important that we notice that it says the daughter of a foreign god. This is talking about their religion, not their ethnicity. Because you have the story of, of Ruth and Boaz. Like, you know, God had made provision for people to, to come and seek him. So they were marrying uh, wives that were, or spouses that were not walking with the Lord. And he goes on, And the second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. So to start with, they're offering kind of blemished things. And now they're coming and they're crying and saying, God, why aren't you accepting us? And so that's what God is saying, 14. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not be faithless. God continues the idea of how, we, how husbands and wives treat each other in the New Testament when he tells us husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way for the sake of your prayers or that your, your prayers do not be hindered. And so these people had, um, they were obviously sinning against each other. They were marrying people who didn't love the Lord. And beyond that, they were divorcing um, their wives, the wives of their youth, likely to marry um, marry these ladies from, from other um, religions and, and backgrounds. I do want to just um, read 15 and 16 in the King James, and the intent is not to get us into the weeds, but I want you to be aware of verse 15 is probably 
of all the verses you'll study in the Bible, translators have a very hard time translating it. And so I just want to read, um, read this here so that you're aware of, of the different translations. Verse 15 says, And did not he make one, yet had he the residue of the Spirit, and, where, and wherefore one, that he might seek a godly seed? Therefore, take heed to your spirit and let none deal treacherously, treacherously against the wife of his youth. For the Lord, the God of Israel, saith, he hateth putting away. For one covereth violence with his garments, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, take heed to your spirit that you deal not treacherously. A lot of translations would say here in verse 16 that the Lord God hates divorce. And I think we have to be really, really clear on this, that what God hates is marriages that fall apart. He does not hate people who are divorced or who find themselves in that situation. <clears throat> so I want to just, again, what is the issue here? I would say a compromise in general, but a compromise in relationships. And one of the things that I think is so key in this passage that I do want us to just note is God is very clear on a couple foundational things about marriage. Number one, that God is a witness Whenever people are married, God is there, and God is a witness to that marriage. Number two, it is a covenant relationship. So all marriages that are, first marriages that are legitimate, it is a covenant relationship that God is somehow involved in. And, in, and the third thing that he points out in this passage with clarity is that it is God that makes a couple one. And so, again, please hear me on this. There are so many scenarios we could talk about trying to understand this. But at its core, a marriage is when God makes somebody, two people, one. And so when we evaluate what is and what is not a marriage, we have to come back to what God has said and what God joins as one. And I think that brings a lot of clarity when we try to sort through a lot of the things um, that people are, a lot of situations here. So again, this is a topic I feel bad moving on from quickly, um, but I do think it's really important that we get these three keys or foundations about how God looks at marriage and that we hold marriage as a holy covenant that God is involved in. Okay, moving on to, to argument four. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? So these people had lived um, either around people who were walking in sin, or maybe they were walking in sin in their own life long enough that eventually they just said, well, you know what? Apparently, even if you do wrong, it's okay. And where is God in all this? God, are, are you, where's your justice? Are you taking care of us? And, and that's, what they had, um, that's what they had done. And God is really clear. This, these words wearied him. So going on with this argument, and this, here is where there's so much hope and promise mixed together with the message of, of judgment and confrontation. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So these people were saying, where, where is it at? Where is the judgment? And God is saying it's coming. 
Jesus makes it really clear that this is a prophecy about John the Baptist, that there's a messenger coming. And then you catch the phrase that God is suddenly going to come to his temple. Do you remember here, the people, they, they built the temple, but it didn't seem like God was there. And he's prophesying there is going to come a day where Jesus comes, and it's not going to be the physical temple. In fact, that curtain is going to get torn in half, and it is going to be into the temple of our hearts. And here is God, 400, 450 years before this is happening, saying this is going to happen. You feel like God isn't going to do anything, but it is coming. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in the former years. When I read through the prophets and they prophesy ahead to the coming day of the Lord, one of the things that I have to keep in mind is that there's two options for me. Either I allow God to refine me and to cleanse me of sin ahead of that day, and that day is joyful, or I will face judgment. And the promise here is beautiful, and it's a beautiful picture that God is coming, but he's actually sitting like a refiner's fire. And so here's a picture of someone that is refining metal. So there's, there's heat. It's not always a fun process, but God says he sits there, he refines us, he heats our life, as it were, and pulls out the things that are not pleasing to him. And the other picture is of a, a fuller soap, and so laundry in those days was not just running it through our nice high-efficiency machines, but it was a lot of dunking, dipping, beating, putting it in soap, beating it, dunking, dipping, ringing, dunking, dipping, ringing. And that's how God often works in our lives. But there's so much hope in this, that God is, he's very loving, he's refining us. And so that, that is the one option, that we respond to that. But he goes on to say, if we don't respond to his refinement, this is what judgment will be. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired workers in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner, and do not fear me, fear me, says the Lord of hosts. So a whole list of things, but at its core, it's when we don't walk in the fear of the Lord. God, is, God will come as a judge. So the fourth issue here is a question of justice. They're, they're questioning God's judgment. The truth is that we will be refined or judged God reveals himself as a refiner, either of gold and silver and of fuller's soap. I've got a few more verses and two more arguments left. For the, I, the Lord, do not change. I just had to think of Titus' devotion. I think it was last week where you talked about God not changing. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? So God is basically asking them to repent, and they're, they're just saying, what do we have to repent of? Then he goes on, will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with a curse, 
for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. So God had set up the tithes so that they were to bring in at least a tenth of what they had to help support the priests, and it also went to support the poor in the land, and then it made so that they could gather and have the feast that God had outlined. And so apparently earlier they were bringing in blemish sacrifices, but they had gotten to the point where they were just not going to bring everything that God asked for, and they had stopped bringing it. So God goes on in verse 10, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your, fruits of your soil and your vine and the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. So apparently they were in a situation where they were, they were in famine. There was some type of a devouring something that God had sent. And God said, test me on this. Bring the tithe first and see if I don't change that and pour out blessing. And I don't know if you all think the way I do, but when, when, we can go, when I go through hard times where money is tight, I can have this thinking of like, well, like when things are better, then I'll give or give more. And we often, sometimes we hear that language, like wouldn't it be great to have X so that I could give away this? And here God is saying they were in a situation where they didn't have much. And God was saying, bring the tithe first and see if I won't open the windows of heaven. And so now immediately we're thinking, well, how does this line up with the health and wellness gospel? Are you saying that you can give to God so that you get? I'm not saying that, but I don't want to water down what God is promising in any way. God is saying, bring the full tithe. Don't hold back from me. Test me on this. Um, and again, please hear me very carefully for what it is. I'm not saying that it's always you do this and God does that. One of the things that's been a little eye-opening for me is I've been reading about a Christian couple who God laid on their heart to, to give beyond 10%. And I don't know how they landed here, but they decided they were going to tithe their age. So at 25, they're going to give away 25%. They're now, they're my age, they're now in their mid-40s giving away 40% of their income, and they just say they could never, ever, ever have imagined what God would open up for them, you know, when they started this journey 15 years ago. So again, let's not, in our rush to not get imbalanced, let's not weaken what God says. And if God lays on your heart to give, give. I know there will be blessing. I don't know if it will be here and now or if it will be in heaven, but I don't think we'll ever regret giving in any way. So here is the fifth, um, the tithe. They were not giving God all that, he, all that is his. The truth is we can rob God, and giving to God will result in blessing. <clears throat> okay, we are almost done with the book and want to hear the, la the sixth argument that God brings. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. So the people have become so just disillusioned that they said there's no point 
in walking with the Lord anymore. I want to go on to God's response to that. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. And I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and one who does not serve him. So the whole group of people, or not the whole, a lot of the group of people were saying, what's the point? But those who still feared the Lord, they spoke with one another. And it, this feels a lot like church. The people who were fearing the Lord gathered and were speaking to one another. And God, God listens. And whatever this all means, a book of remembrance was written to remember those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. And then in the end, God says, these people are mine. The reward is actually himself. So I just want to encourage us today that any act of obedience is God takes notice of, and it will be, it will be remembered. And this goes on, uh, finishing out this portion of the argument, or the God responding to it. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. The day is coming, the day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. So the people are asking, is it really worth serving God? And God is making that very clear. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. Ye shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. And you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on that day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. So looking ahead to Jesus, the day is coming. It's going to rise like a sunrise. There's going to be healing and freedom and change in our hearts. Um, and the word picture is, is like a calf that you let out of a stall. So I'm not a farmer. I don't know exactly how they act. I do know how my dog acts when we let her outside after she's been in a cage for a long time. We say that she got the zoomies. She just goes crazy around the yard. And that is the picture of of God working in our lives. There's healing, and there is freedom, and there is joy, and there is celebration celebration of what God is doing um, in our hearts. So wrapping up, uh, the issue was they were thinking it was vain to serve the Lord. Today that could translate into not feeling like it's not worth serving God. The truth is that God remembers all who walk faithfully, and God will bring healing and freedom. There are a few more verses to wrap up the book and wrap up the Old Testament. God says, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and the rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And this closes out the Old Testament where it goes about 400 years until John the Baptist comes on the scene. So just looking at at the overall chart of the book, We have a message from the Lord of hosts. We've walked through these things, including the Old Testament. The message is, remember my word 
and there is a promise of changed hearts, that he's going to change the hearts of, of fathers and parents towards their children and children back to their parents, and it is a, a restoration that's happening. So there's a lot of things that we've talked about, and I want to just zone in on, to wrap this up, in conclusion, what I would like us to focus on, is, and that is how do these issues intersect with our lives today? And again, some of these things might feel removed because we can't relate to the specifics of it. But looking at this line of issues that we might face today, as I was studying this, there's all kinds of ways to divide up these six arguments. And in, in studying it, this is what connected with me. Please hear it as this is what I was seeing. It's not that I had read this anywhere, so um, I get a little bit nervous if, if you're the only one saying something. So I guess here it is that. But if I am to boil down the issues today, I see them as a, as a bit of a sequence that we can go through. The core issue in the book is, do you believe and rest in God's love and live out of that? That's the core issue of the book. And when I start doubting God's love, I am going to progress to actually not honoring God with true worship. I'm going to try to be a little bit half-hearted about it. But when we truly know how much we're loved and how much we're forgiven, we're going to worship with a full heart. Um, what does Jesus say? He who has been forgiven much loves much. So I can doubt God's love and begin to not worship well. If I'm not worshiping with my true heart, I am going to compromise somewhere along the way. You can't... You can't not live in God's love, and give him partial worship without compromising at some point. And then at some point, I will begin to question God's judgment either in my life or in the lives of those around me. Like, does this stuff really matter? And I will not only not give God all of my worship, but just stop, just scale back on worship, and eventually it leads to saying, is there any point in serving the Lord? So I'd like us just to think through that um, and allow God to, to search our hearts. Maybe some of these connect with you, and maybe it's, the, it's simply needing to go back to the fact of living, living out of God's love um, being the core, core message for the day. I asked Walter to close us out with When I Survey, um, just as a way to stand together and sing and just think about the love of God and live out of that, and if if God is speaking to you in any of these other areas, um, you can stop singing and pray right there, whatever you want to do. Um, but I would like us just to sing in, in honor of, of the love of God expressed through Christ. So thank you, Walter. If you'd lead us, and then you can be dismissed after the song.